Hi, it's Chad. Welcome to the Industrial Real Estate Show. Before we get to today's episode, I just want to do a quick announcement to let you know that I'm starting a weekly newsletter where I provide you with relevant and noteworthy news pertaining to the industrial real estate market. It'll be a once a week roundup. You'll get it first thing Monday morning, and it's completely free. And if you're not getting any value from it, you can unsubscribe at any time. Just head over to industrialinsiders.com and sign up. But on to today's episode. Well, good afternoon, everybody. As you may have guessed, I am very excited for this week's guest. Guest, I know Ryan actually quite well. Uh, Ryan and I have done uh, quite a bit of work together uh, in his endeavors as an industrial real estate uh, investor. He's one of the smartest real estate guys I've ever I've ever met. He's very active, not just in properties that he's bought and sold, but also with a fund that he's now fully subscribed and they're continuing to look to grow. So we'll talk about uh, his his selection process on how he looks at deals, how he finds deals, analyzes them. We'll go through that whole process, but I first want to just start getting some more background from Ryan on how he made the leap from investing primarily in flipping condos to multifamily, then to industrial real estate. Because I think a lot of people that already have experience in industrial real estate are pretty familiar with the process, but it's a big leap, uh, both mentally and and just getting your head around how an actual, actual industrial deal gets structured. It's quite a leap going from multifamily to industrial. So we really want to start by diving into that, and then we'll, we'll get some some tricks and tips on how Ryan looks at a deal, how he analyzes deals, uh, how he goes through the whole process from finding it to closing it to managing it, uh, and then ultimately even with the disposition. So th there's a lot to talk about, uh, but Wyatt, if you could bring on Ryan and we'll start the conversation. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, appreciate having uh, being there. Yeah, it's, I, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you because I've known you quite a while now and we've done a lot of deals together, but I think where, where you can really offer some insight to people is, is there's a lot of people and I, I get them contacting me often is they want to get into industrial real estate, but they're afraid or timid to make the leap from something that they know quite well, which is residential to going into either commercial or industrial. So just want to get a little bit of background from you on how you started in investing in flipping condos, then you bought a multifamily pro property, then you moved over to industrial, I think that was 2013, so almost 10 years ago, right? Well, 2009, actually. So oh, yeah, I, mean, I moved to Edmonton, in, or I moved in 2006 and started uh, flipping residential condos. So a lot of people ask, just like you did, you know, how do you start? Where do you start? And I always say, start start wherever you can, you know, start, start where you're comfortable. And so for us, it was $100,000 condos and putting putting lipstick on them changing kitchens you know doing pretty remedial work and uh, making some money and so uh that was 2006 2007 which gave me enough i guess capital and scale to get into multifamily, and then do the same thing renovate reposition and refinance and then 2009 was the first industrial warehouse and so industrial really stood out for me because it was frankly easier you know, the tenants were a lot easier to deal with dealing with a business owner rather than a, uh, than a, than, than a single tenant, uh, it was just easier for me to deal with. And then the scale was also, uh, easier, you know, it's a lot easier to buy, you know, 20, 30, 50,000 square feet than it is to, to buy 50 units of a, of an apartment building. And so the ease of transaction was why industrial has really since 2009 been the focus of, of, uh, of, of the business so what how did you get introduced to it in the first place 
So I think when we were analyzing apartment buildings in 2008, you know, cap rates were, you know, a pretty fundamental way of analyzing, uh, you know, the viability of a, of a building. And the first industrial building that we bought was a 10% cap rate. And so in a market which was commanding, you know, a seven or seven and a half percent cap, you know, to be able to buy such a cash flow asset, uh, really drew me to it, you know, you know, in hindsight, I was 29 and didn't really know industrial. And when you buy a 10 cap, you're probably buying something that has some hair on it. And, and lo and behold, you know, it, uh, it had some hair, but, uh, that also just sort of ingrained us in, in the market, you know, showed us, you know, how to, uh, reposition assets. So within, you know, a week of buying that asset, we found out from, uh, you know, 80% of the tenancy base that they were, they were moving on. And so this 10% cap rate was a pretty vacant building within seven months of us having, having acquired it. And, uh, so anyway, we were able to stabilize one of the tenants and, and, uh, inevitably did lose one of the tenants, but also backfilled it with a 30% increase in, in rent and were able to refinance it, pull the capital out that we had invested and then continue to move on. So I think you and I, you know, came. Uh, became a lot closer during that second phase of that of that project because I I had bought that with remnant land, yep. and uh, that ended up being the first development. So it, uh, you know, we were able to refinance that asset, pull our money back, and be able to deploy that to do uh, twenty two thousand square feet of small box industrial base. Yeah, that was an interesting project. Uh, we came into that later in, in the stage after you had already built the new addition on that site. And uh, that, was, that was an interesting property where there was an existing freestanding building on there. And then you added uh, condos in there. So 10 industrial condo bays in there. And you, I guess you would have bought that property 2009, right as like the global recession was underway. Was uh was that some sleepless nights when you had bought that right right under that capital crunch? The that we financing, were you know, the financing that we had on it was uh, twenty two thousand a month on an asset that was cash flowing about thirty three thousand a month, and then within seven days, you know, you're losing, I don't know what I was losing twenty twenty thousand a month in revenue. So I was, you know, I'm twenty nine, and I'm sitting at a hundred or hundred fifty thousand of negative cash flow in the first industrial deal I've ever, ever done. So yeah, it, you know, I don't know if it was sleepless nights, but I definitely grew up pretty quick, you know? And, uh, so, I mean, honestly, you and I are friends and know each other because we're, you know, we, we are boots on the ground and we get the job done and that inevitably is what happened. You know? Yeah. And I want to talk about all of that because I think there's, there's a lot of insight in your story on, on how you, you jumped into industrial had a shock to the portfolio right away with two tenants saying that they're going to leave. You stabilized one and that assets actually performed quite well for you over the years, but I'm sure that there's things that you would do differently had you started right now. So in the interest of someone that's listening, that says, I want to get into industrial, putting yourself in those, in your shoes back in 2009, what did you do to learn about the market? How, how, how did you get comfort in saying, I understand this asset class. I understand what it is. I understand the risks. I can deploy some capital. There is some hiccups along the way, of course. But how, how, where did you, where did you get the insight and the, and the knowledge and the wisdom? Just to have comfort to even go and do that. Yeah, well, I think the first asset was really a novice decision. Frankly, you know, it's you know, 
I saw a 10% cap rate and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm winning. Everyone else is losing. And so, uh, you know, it's, you know, it, it was just a novice mistake. And so being able to stabilize that asset, um, and then it turned into an incredible success. You know, we were, in, you know, we bought an asset for two and a half million that within eight months was worth three and a half million. So again, you know, young guy into real estate, and granted that first, you know, two months was tumultuous, you know, within that year, it was, it was a, it was a success as far as we were concerned. And so then that gave us, you know, the, you know, I, I simply expanded on that existing asset. So I didn't look at different markets. I didn't look at different asset classes. I didn't look at anything other than how do I maximize my profit out of this single industrial building that, uh, that we bought. And the 20, 21,000 square foot small box industrial uh, became really the education, you know, on what the users are looking for, how much power they want, how much ceiling they want, how much space generally, hey, what are dock doors or loading doors, you know, so it, it, it was a crash course, you know, and, and maybe I don't advise that it's in development, but again, I, you know, I go back to start where you're comfortable and, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I have a high risk tolerance, but I was comfortable with where we were at with that development to start there. And then that has, you know, as you know, has, has gained, you know, has, has brought us to where we are today and what we do today. So you've done a number of, of projects since, and one in, in particular was a development you did, uh, 40,000 square feet on six acres, if my memory serves, and you had broken that down into uh, four 10,000 square foot bays, brand new class A industrial. And you that was 2013, 2014, I believe, when you had that finished. We went into a recession because we're in an oil and based, uh, oil and gas based economy. So we ran into a tough patch there. But you recently just exited out of that uh, uh, property as well. So the story of, of taking one property that had tenants in there, stabilizing it, and you still have that asset. Take me through the process of buying land and doing a ground up development for industrial real estate. Yeah, so the 40,000 on, on six acres was really uh, an extension of what we had done on the 20,000. So the things that, you know, the aspects of that first development that didn't work or we didn't like or we were, you know, hearing, you know, it's great, but, you know, we could use more land or we could use higher ceilings or heavier power or whatever it was, was really, uh, you know, my ability to go into a market that had maybe a, a little less, uh, uh, cost base for land and uh, and more marketable for op costs for the for the tenant and then really scale it and so the forty thousand uh, building was devised into four bays ten thousand square foot bays with with uh, an acre of land and that's what we had heard resoundingly coming from the tenancy and and the buyers from the first development you know I wish the bays were a little bit bigger and I I wish we had some some land. And so we really tried to build to the market. Unfortunately, you know, in development, timing is not always on your side. And unfortunately for us, you know, timing was not on our side on that. And so we, uh, you know, we finished in 2016 and it took, you know, where we thought it would take months or, you know, maybe a year to lease the building. It took a couple of years. And so not, uh, not dead stop, but, but not, not the way we intended that, that development to go. 
Yeah, and still, you still got it fully leased and and had an exit on it. So it's uh, they, that certainly could. I think it was like a success at the end of the day. You know, it, it's yeah. just you know development from the ground up. You know, and and where we are today, and we'll get into it, is is repositioning existing assets. But uh, where I find you know I'm a lot more comfortable in, but vertical development, greenfield development, infill development. You know, it's you can't you can't uh you can't time the market always you know and so there's incredible success stories you know where where guys are pre-selling or, or pre-leasing before the thing's even done but then you also have you know uh, a development that sits for for two years mm -hmm. and so you know you need to have i was incredibly fortunate to have uh strong partners on on that asset with me that uh, could weather that those two years and then yeah i mean a few years later the building's leased you know the cash flow strong the market turns around you know and and you get a you know you get a return on that on that investment yeah yeah well said and and I, i'd encourage anyone that has a question for ryan you can see that he's got broad experience from taking uh assets that were uh, perhaps not what they look like on face value with like that first property where you had two tenants potentially leaving uh, all the way up to a, a ground up development from raw land to a finished building. Uh, and also now the, with, like you said, the focus is on, on value add of taking an existing property, repurposing it. So I'd encourage anyone that has a question for you as we're going through this, this interview, uh, put it in the chat and we'll get to as many as we can. I saw Beverly had jumped in. Uh, so we both know Beverly quite well. We're big fans of Beverly. We want to thank uh, Beverly for joining in and putting some of the links to uh, to Ryan in the chat as well. So I'd encourage people to, to check it out. So I, I want to, uh, for people listening that, that are looking to get into industrial real estate, uh, walk me through your process on how, how, and I saw that there was a question actually. So this this will be something that I weave in. Uh, we don't need to pull it up right now, why? But it just talked about how you find off market deals. So we'll, we could elaborate on that in a bit. But even if you just how do you how do you start finding deals? How do deals come to you, or how do you source deals? Uh, and then all the way through the process of determining which ones are worth going to due diligence. And we won't go too deep into the into the woods quite yet, but just those two questions. How do you find deals? And then how do you do your back of the envelope math to determine if it's even worth looking at further? Yeah, so I think that, you know, first and foremost, agents are, are a key part of our business. You know, I, investors ask me almost daily, you know, how are, how are you finding the deals? You know, similar to what you're asking right now. And while I can cold call and I can knock on doors, I'm not doing as much as the team of agents within our marketplace. And so we we heavily rely on on the agents within our market to be able to uh, have confidence in in an easy deal. You know, so I, I think I have a reputation of being able to be easy to deal with, quick and nimble, and and uh, and so the agents first and foremost are are the guys that we're looking to guys and girls that we're looking to 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 bring us to bring us the deals you know we say no to the vast majority of them you know i mean we there there's obviously buildings for sale every day and and we say no to buildings every every single day so uh you know cap rates square footage price the covenants on the in the actual building if they're actually if they're tenanted you know what is the usability what is the next phase of the lifespan um there's quite there's quite a few but i would you know in, in the assets that we bought in the last two years so we bought you know not to jump ahead but we bought uh we bought or under contract with just under two hundred thousand feet mm -hmm. so in the two hundred thousand feet i would say that the the math on those assets were 
uh, really what I just said, you know, the covenant, uh, was a cash flow asset. And so the, the tenant in that building is a well-heeled, strong operating business. And they just simply chose not to own the real estate. They absolutely could own the real estate, but a lot of businesses are better served to spend the money in the actual business than they are, uh, in the, in the real estate. So let that be, you know, my job, uh, square footage pricing. So what, you know, buying, buying at a wholesale price and being able to, with one of the assets that you're familiar with, being able to condo convert and, and sell at a retail price, uh, was, was a metrics on one of the assets. And then simply, you know, usability, what, what the building can and will be used for, you know, and, and, uh, have all been the, you know, the core of, of how we value and, and look at, look at the buildings. Yeah. You bring up a really good point there that I get asked this question most often from people outside of the industry on why large companies lease real estate instead of just owning it. And Amazon's a good example that they have billions of dollars in the bank. Why can't they just own the warehouses that they have? But to your exact point, where is their money best served? Is their money best served tied up in the real estate or can they use that money to grow other product lines or other divisions or expand into other areas? And that's not just Amazon. That goes all the way down to the small mom and pop shop. Is their money best served in the real estate or can they expand and, and can they make a better return within their business? than they would within the real estate. I think once people understand that you're, there's an opportunity cost for your money and you could you should be able to earn a better return within your business, otherwise get into the real estate business and don't run your business, then that money's just better tied up there. So I, I agree with you. I, 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 that's a bit of a tangent, but I, I think people do need to understand that there's, there's an active market of large companies that large, medium and small companies that want to lease their space because it's a better business decision for for their own operation. So a really good point on that. So let, let's say that you found a property that you've identified uh, as a candidate and let's say you've, you've toured it, you've done some preliminary math on it and it makes sense. So now you've got an offer negotiated. Let's jump ahead a few steps and you've got the offer negotiated. You have a conditional property. For people that aren't familiar, they, they might be a little bit different than the residential side where that could be a lot easier of a process. What's the process involved in due diligence? And you can give some abstract numbers on time, cost, process on this uh, to just give people a, a better understanding of what's involved in the due diligence. Well, a standard, you know, a standard offer that we write, which you're, you're aware of, is a 60-day condition period and 30-day close. So I think once you're done your conditions, you know, there's really no impediment to, to closing. I think it does take a solid 60 days to do due diligence. It may take longer, it may be shorter, but I think 60 is is probably the the right you know time frame to be comfortable in in getting them all done. Building condition reports are are fundamental for lenders. Environmental reports are fundamental, and appraisals are fundamental. So those are the three uh, necessary components for industrial real estate right now. There will be, you know, other, you know, reserve funds or, or the covenant or who the, who the purchaser is, you know, and, and what the group of investors look like. But I think the three, uh, core, uh, due diligence items for, for a piece of real estate would be environmental BCA and appraisal. And then in terms of your, in terms of your leverage, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of you, but, uh, you know, in terms of your leverage, I would. You know, we underwrite deals with the expectation that's going to be 30% of equity. 
uh, required. So you buy a $3 million asset and we think it's going to be, you know, cost a minimum million dollars of invested capital to, to go into that building. If the building condition report comes back and says there's half a million dollars of work that needs to be done, that would be an add on, you know, you may get financing at a 70% uh, leverage, but uh, more times than not, the lender wants to see that you're actually doing that work yourself. And so in that case, it would be a million five into a $3 million asset. So I do want to uh, elaborate on those reports a little bit more. You and I are in this business. We see and talk about these reports on a daily basis, and we're, we're very familiar with it. For someone that, that all oh, those terms that we might have mentioned might have went way over their head. Sure. Uh, so let's start with the the BCA. So I've even heard it called a property condition assessment. So either building condition assessment, BCA, or property yeah, condition so assessment. So building condition assessment, BCA, you know, it'll address the envelope of the building. So it'll address your roof, the age. Of, of that roof, what, what kind of material is that roof, when it should be replaced. If you're getting a proper BCA, it should give you a 10-year uh, lifespan, and uh, it, should, it should pull out what the capital cost should be uh, to fix any, any issues, if there are any, uh, within that 10 years. And so a lender, if you're getting a five-year fixed-term loan, the lender is going to want to know what needs to be done in that five years. You know, if it falls in year six or eight, they're a little, little less concerned. But if it's called for in year one or two or any anything within that, with anything within the term of the loan, they're going to want to know that it's being resolved so that they're able to, you know, sell the bill. Is it that they're able to get their money back? So uh, roof, envelope, windows, uh, it'll talk about the structure within the site, like within the building. So with industrial, you know, your slab and the usually the thickness of your slab and the quality of the slab uh they'll talk about your plumbing your electrical you know what what components are your plumbing what kind of components are your electrical one of the ones that we just dealt with was uh you know the lender wants to know that there's no copper wiring in uh in the building and so you know i can lay eyes on it i can take a picture i can send it to a, a lender but they they would rather an engineer obviously see it in a report and so your your BCA will address, you know, the components of of your wiring, your plumbing, you know, what kind of HVAC uh, system, heating system that you have, the age of those, when they need to be replaced. So it's it's really a full picture. I mean, if you're looking at a building, you know, I at the beginning of my career, I always found them to be uh, a pain. You know, like you, you're jumping through a hoop to to uh, satisfy a lender. And I don't necessarily care as much as a lender cares about these reports. And you fast forward to me now, I mean, we, we rely on those reports uh, wholeheartedly, you know? And so when they, when they're calling for a roof to be replaced, it's going to be, you know, $400,000. And I think, oh, that's, you know, 10 years ago, I thought, oh, well, that's going to screw up my financing. Now I think, well, that's a roof that actually probably needs to be replaced. So it's, you know, they're, they're important pieces for, uh, for analyzing, for analyzing building environmental similar thing they're they're just testing so environmental is more of a uh, record search and and uh, and uh, it's a record search on what's happened on that property and so if they come across anything like if it was a oil and gas user or anything that could have been a contaminant paint shop anything that would have added contamination uh then they will call for a phase two which is boreholes uh throughout the property so they'll test the soils throughout the property if you have a a negative phase two report then you have to do a phase three which is a a scope of work for remediation 
And so none of the, they're all just hurdles, but they're also education for you on, on getting into a building. You know, you don't, financing obviously doesn't want to touch a building that has environmental, but honestly, as an investor, as a user group, you don't want to touch a building that has environmental issues unless you have a very clear direction on how you're going to remediate and fix those, those problems. Yeah, well said on that. And then not to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure you'd agree with this as well, is that even if you weren't getting financing, if you were buying that property all cash, you'd still want to commission those reports. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was just talking to an investor, you know, an hour ago, and they said that they underwrite their deals with no leverage, you know, and so every deal that they look at is an as they underwrite it to make, make sure it makes sense. It's an unlevered deal. And so they're Due diligence items are exactly what we talked about, but it, exactly, it doesn't it, it doesn't hinge on the financing component. The reason we like financing, as as everybody does, is is uh, you know the multiples on return that you can actually get when you uh, when you succeed at what what it is that you're doing. And for us, in the repositioning and value add uh, game, it really allows us to multiply investor capital. Mm -hmm. So let's talk cost and timelines, fully disclosing that it couldn't vary across markets. Whether you're tuned in in Vancouver, you're tuned in in Florida, the markets can vary, vary and the time and the cost can, can be different. But just as a, a general idea on what you're seeing on time-wise and assuming that all markets are going to be somewhat similar, what are you seeing for costs on uh, the BCA, the phase one environmental and an appraisal? Yeah, so I would say, you know, we use two or three different companies and in our market right now, everybody's incredibly busy. And so we're giving them about five weeks from from go to have a finished report. And and there's times where we'll get it next week. You know, appraisals tend to be very quick. You know, well, I'm able to get an appraisal probably within 10 days, if not a week. But then the BCA and the environmental, we're, we're using this, whatever group we go with. Are doing both of those reports both the environmental and and the bca and we're finding that it's it's about five weeks to to get those reports back and so you know the 60-day window uh that we we're talking about in terms of our standards you know purchase agreement uh gives us that ability to uh get the report done finalize you know tweak the things or ask the questions to the engineers that were uh unclear on or unsure or what simply weren't answered and then you know provide that uh, to our group, whether it's financing or investors or whomever that might be, uh, to analyze it, and then you know become in a position to be comfortable to remove conditions and proceed. Yeah, and then cost-wise, not not to uh, yeah, sorry, cost that, but... cost on environmental would be you know I call it five, like call it five grand, I guess for for. Uh, for high level numbers, you know, every report, you know, budget $5,000 and you, yeah. you probably do better or, or marginally worse. But if you're budgeting $5,000 per report, that was the other thing, you know, at the beginning of the career, you think, oh my God, I'm going to spend, you know, $15,000 on three reports to buy a, you know, even at the beginning, you buy a $3 million property. I, I hated that. I hated that I had to like spend you know, $15,000 to do the due diligence to buy an asset that I, you know, really wanted to buy. And, uh, you know, education is is formed on the people that have been in the market for a long time. And, and uh, for the young people that are tuning in or will tune in in the future, you know, those are, that's money well spent. 
you know, and it's, you know, they're needed reports and you should rely on them as, as you rely on mentors to, to educate you on the properties that you're, you're looking at. And, and so. I do want to talk about the value of mentors later on as well. So I'm glad you, uh, you brought that up and planted the seed for that. I, I, I agree with you completely on that is that you look at the process of spending 10 to 15 grand, and then you're going to probably have a legal, a lawyer in there reviewing documents, or at least, at least you, sh you should have somebody unless you're very familiar with it yourself. Uh, you're going to have legal fees in there just as part of your due diligence. Uh, but I think that that's one of the most surprising things that new investors have getting into industrial is that it's, it can be a two month process of just compiling all of your due diligence and it's going to be 10 to 15 grand in there of cost so it is it's a natural barrier to entry and i think that that's why in one of the reasons anyways on why industrial offers more lucrative returns than other asset classes is because it does take a learning curve and a process to, to go through it. So I, I guess that, that that could lead me to uh, to the next question that I have just on on how you start looking at a deal from a return standpoint. Obviously, cap rates have, have come down. I don't think there's many 10 cap properties, uh, at least that I haven't seen many uh, recently. So when you're looking at a deal, are you how much weight are you putting on a cap rate? And then what is the process on how you're trying to build out a pro forma uh, for like a longer term hold on it? Um. So we, we rely on cap rates, you know, like as a, as a value, as like an end value or, you know, as, as complete a value, you know, we'll, we'll rely on that. I think that, uh, you know, maybe rephrase the question to give me a bit more direction. Yeah. Um, I, how are, are you building out a, call it a five or a 10 year pro forma and trying to figure out what your internal rate of return is over that period? Or are you just looking to stabilize the cash flow and, and apply a cap rate to give you like a rough idea of okay. value at that yeah. point? Yeah. So no, I mean, we're, we immediately look at an asset and the usability of the asset, whether it's a, whether it's cap rate or a per foot or the covenant of the, of the tenant, we look at the usability of that, of that building. And so granted, uh and so we go into it with a you know at least a five-year projection mm -hmm. on on what that building is going to be and so if it's going to be empty i mean we buy buildings we buy buildings typically that are chronically troubled and so whether, whether they're vacant or they have you know they need renovations or whatever it is i mean they're we're buying problem assets and so we absolutely need to know uh or be comfortable on on where that asset's going to go in the next five years in terms of market and what what users are looking at we do look at irr and so we don't necessarily have a threshold though the you know we're in a new fund here that i'm sure we'll touch on mm -hmm. and you know it has a high watermark that says you know we, you know we as operators are paid more if the irr is higher than than x and so uh you know internally we want to do well by the investors uh but we also want to do well by us and so uh, but but more than the return on the actual like capital invested, it's the it's the uh, function of the building, you know, because you're you're only going to lose if the building doesn't work, and so you can't you can't control all the factors, but you can control uh, your analysis on on the usability of the building. And, and then on a related topic on that, how are you looking at your downside risk on this as you're going through that process? I think that's part of the usability, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I think the downside risk is, you know, what is the worst case scenario, you know? And, and so we don't really analyze a building based on thinking it's going to sit empty for two years. We analyze a building saying, what is the lowest rate that we would have to charge to backfill this building? 
And so that is really how we how we govern the downside risk. And we, you know, like uh, again, I keep talking about before and and later, thinking I have too much gray gray hair and in my long established career, but, uh, you know, I used to always want the most leverage as possible, you know, and uh, have the least amount of equity going into it. And while you have uh, maybe a stronger return when it goes well, you have a lot more leverage and a lot more debt, a lot more risk uh, when you, you know, you have those high leverages. And so we, we try to balance that. We try to balance, you know, 70% or, or lower uh, loan to value uh, to, to keep our capital costs low on uh, on financing the buildings. Yeah, and that, that is a critical part with uh, investing in general is you should have a really good understanding, not just of what your upside is if everything goes well, but what is the downside if things don't go well? Right. And you've you've had examples of that where, where things didn't go as according to plan, but you had a contingency plan and were at least prepared for those things and you were able to ride it out until it was in a better position to take advantage of it. So I, I think that that's, that's a really profound thing uh, to note on there. Uh, I just had someone uh, ask me a question uh, about reports and they said, what happens if there's already reports uh, on the property? So maybe the seller has has a BCA or a, an old appraisal. How do you, and, and obviously case by case, but how do you treat that if, if there's already reports on the property? We'll rely on them. I mean, so internally, we'll rely on the reports that are existing regardless of age, you know, whether they're five years or or, or older, you know, we'll, we'll look at those reports and, and uh, give us a clear indication. Environmental is the biggest one. So if you you know, a building, excuse me, if you have a building condition report that's, you know, five years old, it'll give you a sense on like what the building's at, but the environmental, if the environmental five years ago shows that it was, is contaminated and there hasn't been a scope of work, a phase three to remediate that site, you know, that's a, that's a sort of a pause moment to say, well, you know, how serious are we on this asset? Can we deploy capital somewhere else? Uh, in terms of using it for financing and actually close, using it for financing, because you can use whatever report you want if you want to close in cash. But if you want to close in uh, with financing, they're going to, you know, you'll have some lenders that will accept an 18-month-old report. Most uh, lenders want to have a 12-month uh, or newer report, and so uh, you can simply ask for a transmittal letter uh, from the vendor, from the seller, to uh, ask their uh, engineers and the people that did those reports to provide a transmittal letter for you and your finance arm. That's the easiest way. It costs a few hundred bucks to get those uh, to get those letters. That said, you know we went through a acquisition in December. The appraisal was I don't know. I think the appraisal was like nine months old, and uh, and the appraiser because of the market we were in at the time with COVID and whatnot. Uh, wouldn't provide a transmittal letter. They they wanted to do a full analysis, so you could, you know, you might argue it's cash grab for a new report, but you also get a sense. I mean, they they have the liability on providing a report that they you know believe is accurate, and so even the even even the people doing the report required that you know we do a new report with them uh, within within nine months. Just talking about the environmental, uh, just before we move on, uh, we talked on reports for roughly five grand in a few weeks to maybe a month for phase one. 
phase two, like you mentioned, you're actually going in and you're boring holes. They're, they're testing that soil in the lab to see if there's any uh, contamination. So if there's any levels of, of, of something that's beyond the threshold established by the, the governing body, uh, then it could be contaminated. I, I know you've done phase twos. Have you gone to a phase three before? I've only bought, no, so I haven't personally. I've, I've bought, uh, one of the buildings that we bought in the last year actually, uh, went through a phase, phase four. And so it was, it was an education for me just within the last year of a group that, so they were end users. They were the tenants in the building, uh, or owners of the building and operators of the building. And then we, and so they treated it as if it was their own, uh, their own asset. And so they, uh, at the time that they went to sell it, which was a few years ago, they started doing all the reports. So phase one, phase two, I don't have timelines on it, but uh, they did a phase two, which called for a phase three, which is scope of work, which had, I forget what it was, about 80 cubic meters of soil to be uh, torn out. And uh, there wasn't cost analysis, but I would, I would put that cost at about 400 grand. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, it wasn't a small job. It was, and frankly, I mean, 80 cubic meters is like not that much dirt. You know, it's like uh, you can you can eat up a lot of uh, dump trucks with 80 uh, 80 cubic meters. So, um, anyway, they like the phase four, I believe, is the one that shows you that it's been remediated and cleaned. So. I, I think that, that that's worth emphasizing to anybody that's looking into this is it, it can become very complex as you're going through an industrial purchase. And that's why an investor like Ryan is, has has a team uh, that that's working on this, uh, an, an environmental consultant that's walking through this process. The, the last thing you want to do is buy a property that hasn't had a proper environmental report done to find out that it's going to cost $400,000 to remove uh, 80 cubic feet of, of dirt. So that I, I just wanted to echo that comment because I know we've dwelled on that a lot, but it can become very daunting as you start going through the process of getting a building condition assessment, uh, a phase one, two, three. I've, I've never been involved in a phase four. Uh, that, that's a scary proposition in itself just to see that process underway. Uh, I think typically and a, we steer away from environmental issues, right? I, 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 mean, I was going to say that too. We'll, we'll talk about how they can remediate and remediate like effectively, you know, the the market that we're in the city gives you grants for brownfield uh brownfield like sites you know contaminated sites you know our, our city will give us you know some money to remediate those sites so that they can so that you can develop on it we typically find it to just simply be easier you know there's there's easier deals in the market than having to you know like uh, we're not we're not in a shortage here and so you know we we typically yeah look for easier deals the vast majority of investors that I've spoken to over my career have said the same thing is that if it, if a phase two indicates that there's contamination, it's just on to the next property. Yeah. You can spend I think so you and I spoke about a property, you know, within the last six months and it was, you know, it's on the market million five and uh, it's on the market for a million five and you can, and it has a valuation of like seven and a half million, you know, but it's still not worth it. You know, because you don't know how deep that rabbit hole can take you, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, if you, if you spend $5 million and that, that one had a considerable amount of contamination just from the operator that was on there, uh, you, you could spend $5 million just chasing that problem and you still might not even know. So yeah, it was a property that was selling. uh, Yeah, you're right. It was, I think those were the numbers million and a half. And it had an appraisal on it that the extraordinary assumption was that there was no contamination. And I think that maybe they just had like a preliminary report or an estimate of value done on it that said that, but nobody touched it. Nobody wanted to take on that risk. So I, I, yeah, just to, just to echo what Ryan said there is just make sure you're doing all your due diligence on this. Cause I, I think that's really important. Uh, we had a question come in from uh, Pat uh, White, if you don't mind pulling that one up. Uh, Pat, thanks for joining in and the question, uh, good info. What would you say is the minimum square feet that you would suggest going after when first starting out uh, buying an existing property? I don't think there's a size that's too small. I think that you need to, I think that you need to uh, chase what you think is comfortable, you know? So whether that's a, I don't know what small is, you know, if that's a 500,000 square foot, you know, industrial condo bay, uh, you know, and, and the numbers make sense. Uh, I think that that's, that's great. We, you know, to jump ahead to what we're doing in Artisan, but uh, you know, we're, we're chasing buildings between three and, three and 10 million, uh, because we find that to be opportunistic. You were talking about a barrier to entry, uh, because of the reports and, and, you know, as, as the costs of the properties go up, the barriers become higher. And so, you know, we're, we're capitalized and able to deploy more money than we were able to 10 years ago. And we find it pretty opportunistic to, to look at properties that are a minimum of, of 3 million and then upwards of, you know, 10 to 10 to 20 million, frankly. Uh, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't use that as a, as a limiting factor. I think that if you can find a great asset, that's, you know, half a million bucks or whatever it is, you know, that's, that's a great place to start. Yeah. First one I ever bought was a $400,000 industrial condo and that was in 2014 and still own it. Still, we've, we had one month of vacancy in that entire eight, eight years that we've had it. Yeah. And it's been, it's been a great investment. It's building, the whole building's been refaced and there's some work that's gone into it. Uh, we've chased bigger deals ourselves since as well, but it's, that's still been a great investment and to get your foot in the door. Uh, I, 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 I agree with that point you made uh, earlier, Ryan was, but there, I don't think there's anything too small either as long as the fundamentals make sense and you can you can justify the money that you're deploying and then also just that you're committed to spending the amount of time required to really understand the market your local market uh, as well as just the asset class you talked about that earlier right about just some of the important things to tenants and and that's another great point that perhaps we could just spend a minute or two on you what you consciously did that very early into your career as an industrial investor is that you you looked at what the what the market wants and you've alluded to that that you you surveyed people you surveyed tenants or buyers you talked to brokers all the time what would you say are some of the key things that industrial investor uh like like pat who wants to get started what would you say to pat that he should be looking for in a building uh uh, speaking from a fairly high level, because obviously the, every market's going to be a little bit different and unique, but speaking from a very high level, what are some of the important things you've found to be uh, in industrial real estate that's worth paying attention to? Yeah. So I think that like, first and foremost for Pat and whomever, whomever else is listening, your market will have specific fundamentals, you know, and, and what our market and, and different markets have, you know, there, there might be some overlap, but, uh, so I'll, I'll only simply speak to, you know, this market, 
which I think has some translation, but manufacturing needs heavy power, you know? And so you, you definitely want to, like, if you're in a node that has manufacturing, you want to be able to supply uh, heavy power to that site. So I think that we, we tend to find 400 amp to be sort of the minimum if it's going to be a manufacturing uh, facility. Uh, slab thickness is like a big component. So if it's heavy user, you know, they, they tend to want like a seven inch slab. And even if they don't fundamentally know the slab that they want, you also don't want them coming into your building and breaking, breaking your slab. So you want to know what the use is so that you know that they're not going to, you know, trash, trash your building. Uh, thick slab, you know, storage and yard is, is big components. A lot of people are looking at security right now. And so LED lights and, and security fencing matters, uh, op costs, operating costs. And so, you know, what is it going to cost to, to service that building? Do you have, do you have remnant land that's not actually generating cash flow that your existing tenants aren't using, but will end up having to pay whether it's property tax or landscaping or whatever it is. So, I mean, you have to be cognizant on the cost to the tenant. Uh, distribution needs ceiling height, you know, bay doors are a big thing. So whether you have grade or, uh, grade or dock loading doors, you know, self levelers, if you're going to, you know, have, have dock doors. So there's a lot of, in our market, we have a lot of older assets that don't have, that have dock doors that so with no levelers, you know? And so, uh, that becomes like, a. I think the last quote I have was $13,000. And so if you're, you know, if you're at $13,000 for a, 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 a leveler and you have 15 doors, I mean, that's a pretty major cost to get you to sort of square one. You're not dealing with the roof or the grading or anything else. You're simply, you know, getting the building up to, up to stuff. Um, power roof. Yeah. Light security. You know, I think those are probably pretty universal throughout, uh, throughout markets. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I, I think that those are, are important, whether you're a manufacturer or a logistics company. What I always encourage people to do is whatever their market in is just start studying what, what's available. So you can go on to any of the major uh, brokerage websites in your specific market, start looking at the properties that are available and start noticing what, what's being mentioned. So it might say loading 10 doctors. They might have both. They might have dock and grade. There might be a certain ceiling height that's important. Some of these newer markets, we're starting to see 32 and higher, whereas other uh, properties, it could be 18 feet, and that's adequate for, for the market that's there. So just really start paying attention to what the market is and what if any property that you're looking at, you just want to be competitive. And if you, have, if you don't have something that every other property has, what's the cost to fix that so that you are competitive? And, and I think if you take that mindset of just knowing any property that you're looking at is competing with all the other properties. Uh, so you just want to make sure that you don't have anything uh, or you're missing something that other properties uh, don't have. Uh, so, sorry, anything to add on that? I think, well, I think that, you know, one thing that, you know, has become really transparent in the last couple of years of us looking at buildings is that, you know, uh, tenants want ceiling height in our market. And so they want high ceilings for racking and storage. But, uh, but the reality is, is that they don't actually have insurance above 16 feet unless you have sprinklers. And so they will, you know, a tenant um, can be their own worst enemy at times and you need to be their advocate. And so, you know, if a tenant is looking to do racking, uh, you know, the building in Ashton that we talked about was 28 feet. There's not a single user in there that's using 28 feet hmm. and uh, no one has sprinklers. And, uh, 
and, and there's a cost to sprinklers. I mean, we're we're under contract with a building that has sprinklers, and we're pursuing it as distribution because it's it's defensible. So, you know, I think I only bring it up because I I can almost guarantee that in any market, you know, ceiling heights are going to be a, a topic, and uh, and it'll be a topic because of distribution and where we're at with you know the world of distribution. But know that at least in our market, and I would assume that's pretty universal, is that over a certain height and in our market 16 feet they don't have insurance unless it's a sprinkler and so unless you're going to put sprinklers in there or you're going to provide a ti for the tenants to do it or they're that they themselves are going to do it you know how, buying a, a high ceiling height building actually has no value unless you're actually going to add that secondary value to it yeah and if anything then you've got increased costs of heating that cubic footage uh, versus a building with 20 20- sure. 20 feet is going to have much less of cubic footage to heat. So it not only is there not necessarily any value for the tenant using it, but they're going to be paying more in, in operating costs as a result. Uh, I, I want to move on because I still want to get your uh, talk to you about artisan and just value of having a mentor in this space. But there's a few other questions that came up. Uh, Wyatt, if you can bring up the one from Graphics Equip. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining as well. I always appreciate your support and questions. Uh, how are lenders scrutinizing environmentals? Great they question. simply look at whether there's a phase, you know, so if a phase one is a records check calling for a phase two, uh, the lender is going to require a phase two. And like we had talked about earlier, I have only ever bought a phase three and a phase four building. I have never actually gone to a phase two and had those core samples tested and they come back uh, contaminated. And so that typically for me, you know, and, you know, having bought quite a bit of real estate has been where it ends. And so they scrutinize it only in so only in so far as to know that it's, it's past the phase two environmental. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned earlier, it just comes down to risk for the lender. They just want to make sure that if anything went sideways, they're not taking back a property that has uh, an unknown cost to remediate. So what, what I've found to be the most effective is if you have a report that clearly and definitively says no further testing is recommended, and that report was done fairly recently, last few months up to maybe a year, year and a half, that's usually sufficient. But if the, if there starts getting any wishy-washy language in there, or if it's a two-year-old report, all bets are off. You might you might have to do further testing or, or get an updated report. Uh, that, tends yeah, to be, that tends to be like an issue as well with the engineers, right? Where they don't want to give you concrete language and you as a team and, and uh, financing, but you as like a, a buyer want concrete language. I mean, you want it to know that it's that it's clean, that you can proceed. And so we, I mean, we lean on our our engineers to provide exactly that. You know, we we had a report, most reports will say conclusive, no further testing required, but we have had, you know, a handful of reports that come back saying, well, you might, you know, you may want to look at this in two years from now. And we either, you know, get them to either solidify that that is in fact the case or you know they were just nervous about giving a a concrete report to say like no further testing required you know there's not a you know uh we're looking at a site that ended up becoming like we ended up finding out it was contaminated and uh didn't pursue it walked away but in that process you know talking to a few people that uh leading into mentors talking to some mentors 
you know, they, they said, you want to know that the contamination is not still happening, you know? And so if it's, you know, I have, I have friends that have five acres on the south side and the city was pooling snow uh, on the city's land, but as the snow melts and the, and the salt drains into the, the ground, it actually contaminated uh, the adjacent site. And so that's, you know, that's a, that would be a building or a site that is not, uh, not going to continue to be contaminated. Right. And so you need to know that whatever caused the contamination is not going to continue to cause the contamination. Mm-hmm. Um, so next question, I think actually ties into this, uh, mentorship one, uh, why, if you don't mind pulling up that one uh, from Neil, uh, Main reasons you switched from multifamily to industrial investing, and how did you start educating yourself on industrial? I, th- I think you touched on that uh, at the beginning quite well, uh, but I, I do know that you've relied heavily on mentors to take take yourself from an investor that switched from multifamily to industrial to where you are today, where a couple hundred thousand square feet, you're, you're looking to add another $15 million in the next year or so here. What what was the value of having a mentor? How did you find one? And how, how could someone find a mentor in, uh, in their market if, if they wanted to take their game to the next level? Well, I've always, you know, looked for the individual that, you know, is like-minded and, and senior to me. And so for, uh, and so for me, you know, there's been, there's not a ton, but there, you know, there's a few individuals that are, you know, 20 years my senior. And I feel like uh, uh, were uh, exactly where I am, or you know, maybe a bit ahead, maybe a bit behind, you know. But very much, you know, it, it gives me, you know, sort of the the line of sight of of where they are now. And uh, you know, they, you know, I was thinking about that earlier, and I was thinking that you know, anybody that's older and successful really um, respects ambition. And they really want to look after, you know, I feel looked after, honestly, you know, like they, they don't want me to make the same mistakes uh, that they made. And so they're, while they're not going to hold my hand throughout the whole process, you know, I can, I can easily call, you know, a few guys or a few individuals and, and simply say, what do you, what do you think? And, and just like, you know, you know, a 30 year old can call me and I can answer a question really without thinking, you know, they do the same for me. And so it's been, it's been incredible, honestly, you know, I feel incredibly fortunate to have the individuals, uh, around me. So there's no formal agreement. There's, you know, it's just simply finding, finding the people that you mesh well with that, uh, that respect you, you respect them, you know? And, and so I, you know, I think that, you know, NAOP Edmonton or NAOP is like a organization that we're familiar with. And so there is a mentor mentorship program. And so I'd say any market has uh, some sort of real estate, commercial real estate organization within it. And that organization should, if they don't, they should have a mentorship uh, program. And so, uh, so get on that, you know, it's a good yeah. place to start. Uh, you and I both served on the board of, of NAOP and I, I recommend it to everybody. I, I think it's one of the best values uh, that, somebody involved in the commercial or industrial real estate sector can get into membership isn't crazy expensive you're getting access to industry leaders in your local market that like you said are are often very eager to help uh, or or steer you in the right direction so i that's that's one thing that that 
one of the first things I recommend to people when they ask how they can get more involved is look for a NAOP chapter. I think, I, I don't remember offhand, but I think there's close to 50 chapters in North America. There's a lot. Any, there's any a, major markets. I mean, I'm sure we have some markets uh, tuning in or we'll stream this at a later case, but uh, within a general proximity of where most listeners are, I'm sure there's a NAOP chapter. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't uh, reinforce that more is that th there really is a, a lot of value in, in NAOP for no other reason than you get access to some leading edge information that they produce and the, the mentorship value that they have is is tremendous as well. What's uh, our commission on this plug for them? Yeah, we should be free membership <laughs> maybe for 2023. <laughs> we'll have to send an invoice for that. Uh, oh, thanks, Beverly. She put the link to NAOP in there as well. She's on the ball. Uh, TCS, thanks for joining in. Uh, always appreciate your questions as well. Are you experiencing negative leverage in your market? Uh, that's, a, that's a great topic right now. And what's your debt financing strategy? Uh, you know, we signed a four-year uh, fixed term at 4.65 uh, the other day. And I was telling an investor, you know, before I jumped on this call, that's probably 150 basis points above where it was six weeks ago. And and he was lamenting that it's probably 225 basis points of where his market is from uh, from seven weeks ago. So, I mean, the markets are changing and uh, the cost of capital is is changing. I think that we um, are trying to go into every property wise, eyes wide open. You know, our strategy is a reposition uh, strategy. And so the money that we are uh, the four point six five is a is a stabilized refinance of a repositioned asset. And so when we go into an asset, we're, we're not expecting, you know, cheap money. We're expecting to be in and out, but we do need to have a clear uh, sight on what we think the interest rates are going to be. And that's a moving target right now. And so we, we're starting to underwrite at 5%, um, but whether that's five and a half in six months, whether it stays at, you know, whether I'm still able to attain uh fixed price money under five percent i'm not you know i don't i don't have a clear i don't have a clear answer on that and on the debt side you're looking to put down 35 percent we're looking at 30 percent minimum you know there's times where you know the the asset is incredibly uh, uh valued um over what uh the purchase price is it's been you know an opportunistic purchase so we will put higher leverage to cost on the asset, but it will still fall under a 70% loan to value. And so there are times where we'll use high leverage on an acquisition, but there's still, you know, call it a 30% equity uh, component between, you know, appraised value or market appraised value and, and the debt load on it. Mm -hmm. So you've been uh, investing since 2009. That's even longer than I thought I thought it was. So you've you've got like you've earned those gray hairs in your beard. That's for sure. Gray? Yeah. Well, a little bit. It's a little yeah. bit. You look, you look distinguished though. Yeah. Thank you. So you recently, I think it was in 2021. If maybe my we've got my dates wrong on that as well as when you started uh, Artist and Industrial. Yeah. And... So Artisan started last year. Yeah. 2021. And so the you know we've I've been in the game of of buying refurbishing and repositioning industrial assets for, uh, you know, more than 10 years. Yep. We've had vertical development in there, but uh, the biggest wins and, and where I feel like I'm the most successful and, and, you know, frankly, the smartest is buying, you know, assets that have issues and, and being able to reposition them and, 
and uh, tenant them, refinance them, or sell them. And so uh, Artisan started uh, last summer, last spring, uh, under the Artisan Industrial brand. And the goal was to raise $5 million and buy about $20 million of real estate. And so you fast forward 10 months later, and we've raised that full $5 million, five point, just under $5.3 million is raised. And, uh, and we've bought uh, just over $15 million. And, and are on track to buy probably about another 10, 10 or 15 million with what we still have on uh, uh, in the bank and, and with the refinances that are coming through. And so it really is just a scale of what I've been doing for the last you know 13 years is is buying. There's really no difference. You know, the, the price target is three to 10 million and buying assets that have uh, either they're chronically vacant um, you know, the, the owners simply don't want to manage it or uh, end users simply want to buy or there's legacy that, you know, the first asset that we bought, it was legacy. So it was, you know, the parents ran the business, owned the real estate, want to retire and the kids run the business, have no interest in owning the real estate. Right. And so, uh, you know, being in the market with agents and just kind of knowing what's going on, get, you know, put that put that deal in front of us. Um, so are, are you you're fully subscribed on 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 your first raise are you still actively looking for uh investors that that want to be uh in, involved yeah absolutely in yeah so i think that yeah so exactly I, we we started raising capital last summer and so the investors that are first in wanted to know that there was a horizon on raising capital and a horizon on the actual fund itself and so it was a it's a five to ten year fund and $5 million. So if you had to, you know, invest a quarter million dollars in September wants to know that we're not still raising money and still sort of dragging his investment out. And so we put a fine deadline at, at the end of February of 2022, where we would raise capital till the end of February, 2022, we extended it till the end of April so that we would be fully subscribed, which we succeeded in. And, uh, and again, to buy probably another 10 or 15 million of real estate within that fund and and immediately we're we're already uh we haven't branded uh fund two because we still need to finish this uh first fund but uh you know people ask like what what's the extension of of uh deals that you see within our market and i think it's about 80 million and so i think you know I, like i'm not shy of our current market um right now and so i think that we uh we're going to continue to go and maybe we'll see you know a, a restraint on deal flow and and what is viable uh deals for returns uh before we hit that 80 million but right now i you know i'm pretty you know i'm uh optimistic on on how far we can go so yeah there's there is no uh stopping i guess of raising capital it's just uh onward and upward so I want to end uh, by getting your outlook on the industrial real estate market. And I know that there'll be some location specific assumptions and comments that you'll have on there, but even just the case that you would have for somebody that perhaps might be speculative uh, or, or concerned about putting their toe into the industrial real estate water. So I do want to get your thoughts on that, but just before we close out on that, uh, we have your contact information, both your LinkedIn and artisans website posted in the, in the description. So I'd encourage people to reach out and talk uh, with Ryan. And if you're interested in investing in this fund, uh, the website's there as well. And I'm sure Ryan would be happy to talk with you. Uh, but closing out, what's, what's your outlook? What's your sense of, 
of the market. How would you say to someone that wants to get in, but they just need that little push? What's industrial like in your mind? Well, I think that you, you know, I keep saying it, it's probably the third time, but start where you're comfortable, you know, and, and uh, regardless of size and, and uh, regardless of uh, capital uh, that you have, you know, ready to go. I think that you need to start wherever you can start. You know, I, uh, we're, we're uh, optimistic about industrial. I think that the market is changing. It's interesting because the market probably two years ago in our, in our market, but probably North American wide has, has shifted more into distribution. And I think that with the lead times that everyone's experiencing right now, with trying to get stuff from overseas. I think that manufacturing is actually going to come back to North America. And so I think, you know, it's probably smaller. It's probably a little bit different than, than what, you know, manufacturing looked like, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I do think that there is uh, opportunity both in distribution and in manufacturing and uh, optimistic about our market, you know, optimistic about North American wide, really. So wise words to end on, my friend. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time for yeah, this. I, appreciate I, it. I really hope you actually uh, do some more podcast shows. You got a ton of insight and wisdom to offer. So I, I, I hope you do some more of these down the road and I'll definitely ha invite you on uh, for a future episode as well. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks again, Ryan. Appreciate it. Hey, take care. Thanks. Bye.